Finland must be one of the few countries in the 20th century which has been able to boast such a definitive national composer as Jan Sibelius. No one else comes close in giving voice to the sounds of the forests, the mountains, the lakes of that dark, mysterious and ancient land of the Fen, from which the country's name is derived. Sibelius's life spanned almost a century from 1865. His death in 1957 may give the impression that he was more in tune with the 20th century rather than the 19th, but that would be too simplistic. Like almost everything in Sibelius's life, a delve beneath the surface reveals more complexity. His mature compositional life, for example, lasted a mere 30 years. His last 30 years were spent in almost total compositional silence. It's astounding to think what was happening in musical terms when Sibelius's first masterpiece, Ensaga, was written in 1892. That was the same year that Antonin Dvořák left Europe for his late formative years in the United States. Mahler had only just completed his first symphony. Brahms was still alive. Schoenberg was a mere 18-year-old and, as far as we know, hadn't even dreamt of the 12-tone techniques which he would later develop in the 1920s, the very decade when Sibelius was, to all intents and purposes, finishing composing. Sibelius's highly individual harmonic language is then based in the late 19th century. It's part and parcel of late Romanticism. But it advances confidently into 20th century modernism. This comes through loud and clear in his adoption of the tried and tested tradition of the 19th century symphony, of which he wrote seven that we know about, although a few questions hovered around his eighth until it was finally revealed that he'd destroyed the score in 1933. Sibelius's symphonic output allows us to class him amongst the great composers of his, or indeed anyone's time, since the symphony was invented as a musical form. But is it his symphonies which reveal the character and colour of his beloved Finland? Certainly not in terms of popular appreciation. To understand his uniquely Finnish voice, you have to understand his musical response to the legends, the myths and the sagas of his native country. When Ensaga was first performed in 1893, critics and commentators tried to read a storyline into the 20-minute symphonic poem, something that would tie it to the specific sagas of Finland. But in this piece, the first to achieve success outside of his own country, Sibelius was not intending anything quite so literal. His intention was, as he himself put it, to express a state of mind and to give the musical atmosphere of what he considered a saga engendered. Throughout his life, Sibelius was captivated by the mythology not just of Finland, but of other traditions as well, most notably Greece and Rome. He may well have first come across the ancient classical world at school, studying the epic poetry of Homer, and in later life he often quoted Latin verse in his correspondence. He was obviously sufficiently knowledgeable about classical mythology to be able to write three superb orchestral tone poems which deal with classical subjects. Strangely enough, all three focus on minor characters, specifically nymphs, which were usually female, nature divinities often perceived in human form as beautiful young women. His most famous tone poem of this type 
was the Oceanides, an eloquent musical impression written for the 1914 Norfolk Festival in Connecticut. According to the 8th century BC Greek writer Hesiod, there were 3,000 of these graceful ankled Oceanids. Widely scattered, they haunt the earth and the depths of the waters everywhere alike, shining goddess children. Of course, it was Sibelius's very particular interest in Finnish mythology which established his credentials as a truly Finnish composer. For his source material, he turned to the collection of ancient poems, ballads and songs depicting mythological Finnish heroes and supernatural beings and known as the Kalevala. Literally meaning land of the heroes, it was Finland's national epic, on a par with Homer's Iliad, Iceland's Edda, Germany's Nibelung, or India's Mahabharata and Ramayana. Despite the enormous antiquity of much of this thoroughly pagan epic, the Kalevala was only gradually brought together as a complete entity. This followed extensive and lengthy researches by many scholars over a couple of centuries, who spread throughout the entire Finnish-speaking regions and reached into the Karelian territories, many of which were well beyond the eastern frontier of what was then known as the Grand Duchy of Finland and part of the Russian hegemony. It was a medical doctor called Elias Lonrut who eventually conceived the Kalevala as one epic poem. He first published the compilation under his name in 1835, with a second edition appearing in 1849 and consisting of 50 separate cantos or runes. As a dedicated enthusiast, Lunrot also published many of his own stories, faithfully relating the adventures and difficulties he encountered in his collection of runic material. He describes his journeys through wild fens, forests, marshes and ice plains, on horseback in sledges drawn by reindeer, in canoes or in some other form of primitive conveyance. On one such trip, in a far-off Russian province, he had the peculiar good luck to meet an old peasant who turned out to be one of the oldest of the Runolainen, or songmen, and by far the most renowned minstrel of the country. The old man was at the very end of his life and numerous very precious runes would have been irrevocably lost had not Lunrat managed to record his material. In an English translation of the Kalevala, published in 1888, the American physician and scholar John Martin Crawford gave a wonderfully vivid description of the themes of these ancient runes and often their dark inner meanings. The Kalevala relates the ever-varying contests between the Finns and the darksome Laplanders, just as the Iliad relates the contests between the Greeks and the Trojans. A deeper and more esoteric meaning of the Kalevala, however, points to a contest between light and darkness, good and evil, the Finns representing the light and the good, and the Laps, the darkness and the evil. Like the Nibelungs, the heroes of the Finns woo for brides the beauteous maidens of the north, and the similarity is rendered still more striking by their frequent inroads into the country of the Laps in order to possess themselves of the envied treasure of Lapland, the mysterious sample. Similar to the search for the Golden Fleece by Jason and his Argonauts. The whole poem is replete with the most fascinating folklore about the mysteries of nature, the origin of things, the enigmas of human tears, and, true to the character of a national epic, 
It represents not only the poetry, but the entire wisdom and accumulated experience of a nation. Among others, there is a profoundly philosophical trait in the poem, indicative of a deep insight into the workings of the human mind and into the forces of nature. Whenever one of the heroes of the Galavella wishes to overcome the aggressive power of an evil force, such as a wound, a disease, a ferocious beast, or a venomous serpent, he achieves his purpose by chanting the origin of the inimical force. The thought underlying this idea evidently is that all evil could be obviated had we but the knowledge of whence and how it came. The numerous myths of the poem are likewise full of significance and beauty, and the Kalevala should be read between the lines in order that the full meaning of this great epic may be comprehended. Perhaps more than any other, it uses its lines on the surface in symbolism to point the human mind to the brighter gems of truth beneath. The three main personages, Vainamoinen, the ancient singer, Ilmarinen, the eternal blacksmith, and Lemminkainen, the reckless wizard, are conceived as being of divine origin. In fact, the acting characters of the Kalevala are mostly superhuman, magic beings. Even the female actors are powerful sorceresses. The power of magic is a striking feature of the poem. Here, as in the legends of no other people, do the heroes and demigods accomplish nearly everything by magic. The songs of Vainamoinen disarm his opponents. They quiet the angry sea. They give warmth to the new sun and the new moon which his brother, Ilmarinen, forges from the magic metals. They give life to the spouse of Ilmarinen, which the eternal metal artist forges from gold, silver and copper. We are among a people that endows everything with life and with human and divine attributes. Birds and beasts and fishes and serpents, as well as the sun, the moon, the great bear and the stars, are either kind or unkind. Drops of blood find speech. Men and maidens transform themselves into other shapes and resume again their native forms at will. Ships and trees and waters have magic powers. In short, all nature speaks in human tongues. Widespread as they stand, the Northland's dusky forests, ancient, mysterious, brooding, savage dreams, within them dwells the forest's mighty god, and wood sprites in the gloom weave magic spirits. That was how Sibelius himself prefaced his score for Tapiola, arguably his greatest single symphonic poem, which owed its existence to the Calavella. It was first performed in New York in 1926, when the composer seemed to be at the height of his powers. Ironically, it turned out to be his last great masterpiece. By that time, of course, he'd amassed a sizable catalogue of works inspired by the rich material of the Calavella, and it's certainly worth remembering 
that it was this literary inspiration and not a musical one which prompted Sibelius to develop his own stature as Finland's national composer. Unlike the long list of other so-called national composers from other countries, such as Savon Williams, Bartok or Kudai, Sibelius was always at pains to point out that there were precious few, if any, examples of the influence of Finnish folk song in his own music, and he was almost aggressively sensitive to any suggestion that he'd borrowed from that source. The list of Sibelius's pieces directly attributable to the runes of the Kalevala include his first large-scale work of symphonic proportions, the Kulavo, the four legends of the Lemminkainen suite, the tone poem for soprano and orchestra, Luonatar, the purely orchestral poem, Poyola's Daughter, and of course, the last and greatest of them all, Tapiola. Sibelius's adoption of the Kalevala as one of the foundations of his entire musical career had in fact a much greater significance than might at first appear. As Finland's national epic, the Kalevala had provided a focus for the rising tide of Finnish nationalism, which grew throughout the closing decades of the 19th century. What better way to display a country's independence than to highlight its ancient and historical artistic uniqueness? And here we find one of those strange paradoxes of Sibelius's life. Although promoted as Finland's national composer, his own background and ancestry, his very family name, was in fact Swedish. Although also a Finnish speaker, his first language when growing up was Swedish, and for many Finns in the late 19th century, being a Swedish speaker was paramount to being an outsider. But as Russia began to put more and more pressure on the Grand Duchy of Finland to more fully integrate itself politically into the Russian Empire, in the so-called Russification measures of the 1890s, Sibelius's music, with its strong Finnish imagery and overtones, began to assume a huge symbolic importance, almost in the same way that Verdi became the champion of Italian national unity through his operatic identity, so Sibelius became the cultural voice, the musical embodiment, if you like, of an independent Finland. While ambitiously seeking fame and fortune, the latter always evading him largely through his weakness for high living and a fondness for alcohol, Sibelius was equivocal about his enforced adoption as a national figure. He tried to steer clear of direct political involvements for most of his life and resignedly accepted his eventual position as a national icon with a degree of reluctance, bearing the constant stream of internationally important visitors in his latter years with stoicism. This is again paradoxically reflected by his acceptance of the role of cultural ambassador, but not actually going abroad. There is perhaps one final paradox. Could it be that in the process of becoming the legendary voice of Finland, Sibelius lost his own musical voice? <laughs> 